Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from a person recruited into a company as chief evangelist. He built his career in creative production. Think e-commerce, photography, and videography, managing teams, building and launching studios, and producing and managing large-scale projects for companies like Nordstrom and Amazon. For nearly two years now, he served as chief evangelist at Creative Force and hosted the e-commerce content creation podcast. Daniel Jester, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Hi, Ethan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, really excited to get into it. We've chatted a couple of times before. Um, our conversation, I think our first one several months ago, was one of the sparks where I was like, okay, I just have to start this podcast. So I'm, I'm excited to record one now. And I'm going to start with the standard opener, which is, in your view, in your experience, what is the most important role or the most important job of a chief evangelist? Yeah, so for me, and I thought, a little bit about this like the thing about the chief evangelist role is that it's pretty undefined and that's why i reached out to you in the first place is because you had written a, a prominent blog it's one of the first blog if you google chief evangelist it's one of the first ones and it had a lot of things that sort of resonated with the way that my role had kind of grown over the first year or so of being in it but i was looking for some direction because it's a little bit of a directionless role. And as you mentioned up top, I come from the e-com uh, creative production studio where it's KPIs. We measure everything, we check everything, we improve everything. And the chief evangelist role isn't quite that. And uh, but that but I'm digressing a little bit. Back to your question, I've thought a lot about this. There's two things I think for me that that have been really useful for me. And one of them is a skill that I had and didn't realize that I had until people started pointing it out. And another another one is a skill that I kind of knew that I had, but I've been working on developing and sort of controlling it a little bit. The first one is being able to kind of understand a relatively complex system in a short amount of time from somebody explaining it to you. Think like when you're on the job and you're learning, you're a little bit overwhelmed, but I've always been able to kind of draw the, you know, connect the dots in a way that I, at least at a high level understood it, even if I couldn't execute on the thing that day. Uh, but then being able to take that information and sort of explain that back doesn't mean I'm an expert on the thing or even have any experience doing it, but I can at least kind of parrot back the thing that I was, what was shared with me. The other side of it is just being really good at coming up with analogies that work. <laughs> like there's a part of me where I feel like my job is like analogy factory. Like I need to take this complex idea about what our software does and come up with an analogy that works for people to understand what it does because again for your audience and for i think a lot of chief evangelists out there it's about explaining what your thing does and why it can help you it's not as much about selling it or marketing it is partially that but it, especially at creative force it's just it's a new software it's a new 
it, it fills, it's a new software that fills a gap in the tech stack for a lot of companies, but there's the, the industry that we sell it to is, is a little bit too immature to understand exactly what it is yet. And so, you know, I'm sitting around thinking like I'm cooking dinner and I'm doing all of my prep work and I'm like, okay, I know that I have all of my ingredients because I have a bowl for all of my ingredients and, oh, look, that bowl is empty. Which ingredient was that? Wait a minute. I'm working on an analogy here for the way that creative force works, creating a place for all of the things that you need to do. And now it's really obvious when you missed something. So being able to come up with analogies, uh, and that's pretty closely related to the first thing that I said, which is being able to kind of just get a crash course in something and have a pretty high level understanding of how it works and what it does. Love it. I can relate. Definitely. I, when I, when I've intermittently thought about my strengths and my weaknesses and, you know, what value I bring, not just in this role, but in other roles too, translator and liaison both kind of fit the bill. And I kind of hear a little bit of that, especially in your kind of your, the first uh, role or function that you described, which is like, I need to be able to understand what each person is saying and help make the other people who don't seem to understand, um, understand. Absolutely. And I, you're probably way better and more experienced in analogies than I am, but uh, but I like that one too. And and it's and again, it's this, this idea of trans. And, and I love that you tied into um, the state of the market and the state of the people operating in the market relative to this real innovation that you're bringing, um, because that then explains why there's a gap to be filled with an analogy and with uh, being able to give back in simpler terms or clearer terms or a better picture what someone doesn't quite understand about the problem or the opportunity in front of them. Really good. What um, Normally, I kind of hold this for a little bit, but I think your story is going to be really informative and open up a really um, great conversation. I know a bit about it, but I would love for you to reshare it a little bit. Um, you did not know what a chief evangelist was. You were in conversations with a, a leader, I think the CEO of Creative Force, because you had met on a panel at a conference. Um, he needed and wanted, he had a vision for you doing some of the stuff that you're doing now. And we'll get into what all of that is. Um, but kind of close, color that in with better colors or more nuance than I just yeah, did. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it, it was a big time career pivot for me. I was on a very, very clear path and trajectory. Um, at some point in my life, I decided I wanted to be a photographer, but shooting weddings wasn't really my thing. Shooting portraits wasn't really my thing. And I worked for a company. I was in the merchandising department um, and I worked for a company that had a studio and an opportunity presented itself uh, to, to apply for the role of studio photographer for this company. And at that point I had been, you know, my wife, I had gotten permission from my wife or early on in our marriage. And she she said, if you want to get into photography as a hobby, like, you know, let's figure out what kind of budget you need, equipment you need and all this stuff. And so I had been, you know, hobbyist kind of and I you know like many people I was interested in turning this hobby into a profession I was young I know now the dangers of that but at the time it made sense to me and I discovered through my company in this role that commercial photography was a thing and it was like a light bulb going off like of course everywhere you look there's an image to sell you something uh, and it's been like that for a very long time and somebody has to take all these photos they don't just magically appear out of thin air of course, there's this whole world of commercial photographers that I had not been aware of. And somewhat miraculously, I got that job and worked for that company for several years. And then kind of like, again, I was on a very clear progression. I ended up going from there to work for Nordstrom, 
where I became a senior photographer and learned a lot about sort of the modern e-com studio and the way that the modern e-com studio operates. I learned a ton about things I didn't even know I didn't know yet. Um, and then Amazon came. And when I went and visited Amazon studio, they were going to offer me a position that required me to move my family cross country, which was a scary thing at the time. But walking into that studio was like stepping five years into the future. And so I said, for my career path, this is the thing that makes sense. Uh, came back to Southern California and got, you know, bounced around and, and had, was making the shift into leadership. I recognized that the, at the time that the product photographer, which for your audience, the, the niche that I sort of fell into as, as a like functionally for photography, you know, there's portrait photographers, there's photographers that work with models and shoot on figure. My thing specifically was tabletop product. I like to sit with an object, spend a lot of time with it, make it look the best that it can. Um, I certainly can shoot with models who doesn't want to shoot with very beautiful looking people. Uh, but I really enjoy taking one thing. Uh, that's that's a role that's not long for this world. Uh, CGI has already gotten quite a bit cheaper than it than it had been in the past. And this is the way that e-com companies are going to be producing assets at scale in the future, for sure. So I wanted to make this jump into management. I can manage photographers. And if I can manage photographers, I can manage rendering artists and I can manage digital stylists. So I needed to move up and... Uh, ended up taking a role with the company Farfetch as photography supervisor, and then had an opportunity to jump to the commercial studio side, servicing a lot of different clients, which was just, honestly, that was a little selfish. It was just an interesting challenge. And then COVID and um, our studio shut down. That studio is really not in existence anymore. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I'm going to make a go at it, just shooting product on my own. I've never been a freelance guy. I've never been somebody who is very comfortable. I I do have a handful of clients that I shoot product for, but it's just not a lifestyle that me, that works very well for me and my family. And, uh, but I was like committed. I'd learned a lot. I was producing, I think some of the best photography of my entire career. And I thought, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the catalyst. And my friends from creative force came to me and they said, Hey, we'd, we'd love to talk. We understand you lost your job with the studio and we'd love to talk to you. And they, they said, well, really what we want you to do, I expected, I get, I get asked to consult on studio builds all the time. This was a common thing. And I was doing it. And I was like, you mentioned, I was speaking at events about studio related technology and that kind of thing. And, um, I was expecting them to say, we want you to consult on some stuff. We have some customers who maybe you could help us explain what this does. What they actually wanted me to do was sit down and make videos explaining what our what their software did at the time it was their software. It wasn't my software yet. Uh, and I said, you know, <laughs> and to them, I said, yes, sure. Let's do it. Internally. I said, I don't get in front of the camera. I've never done anything like this. I have no idea how this is going to go, but I have four children that I need to feed. And so I will take anything that I can get. Um, and then so that was it. We had a finite list of videos to make and I made them and I sort of learned this is, you know, I, I got a real crash course in what I described earlier, which is they gave me a creative force account. They told me what they wanted me to make the video on. I went into the creative force account and started working with it, you know, and through the perspective of a studio user, they're cut their actual customers. And so I'm thinking like, if I'm a customer and I'm using it, how would I, how would I train somebody else to use this thing? We started making these videos. Uh, at the end of my contract with them making these videos, I start kind of panicking again. It's now, I think, February of 2021. We're at the end of the list of videos, and I don't have any other jobs lined up. The CEO reaches out to me, and he says, yeah, I think we can find a, a full-time role for you at the company. And I, again, fully expecting to be customer success, 
probably do some time in customer support because the company's a startup and super small. Uh, you know, and doing anything else, like again, leveraging me as a consultant to help these customers. And they hit me with just completely out of left field. We have this role. We want you to be chief evangelist. And a big part of your job is going to be hosting a podcast where you get to talk about the industry. And my mind exploded. And the thing I have to tell you, Ethan, is that uh, I have heard many times from many managers throughout my career, career that I have a tendency to come into your the conversation in group settings. So to have somebody come and say, here's a podcast and you get to talk about the studio, it was like, wow, I actually get to just spend almost 100% of my time just talking about this stuff. And then that has since split into, uh, you know, more speaking engagements at events and just being out there and talking to customers and going back to your earlier question about, you know, if, if I can elaborate a little bit on things that make for a really effective chief evangelist, you know. Be, again, being able to understand systems, I think that extends to being able to understand problems uh, and being able to understand, being able to kind of parse and to your point earlier, again, that having that fluency and that translation ability, because your customers don't always actually know what their problem is. They know what the symptoms of the problems are, but they don't always know what the actual problems are. And so, yeah, it was just like, it, it was a wild career pivot for me. I was on a very clear path, a very clear trajectory. And now two years in, I have an, a whole new body of work. I have an entire new portfolio, 85 episodes of the podcast, multiple speaking engagements at different events around the world. And, um, you know, still just learning a ton. And, and my, the, the, the byproduct of this that's been really interesting is realizing how young my industry is and how much of a role those of us who've been working in it since around 2010 have had in the, in the sort of the evolution and the development of it. And that's been a really exciting thing um, for me to learn. But yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It was it was totally out of left field, but it's been, you know, to sound kind of cliche, it's been a little bit of a dream job. So good. And I'm so, uh, you gave me a lot more detail than I got the first time we talked. And I'm, I'm certain that folks listening found it um, a really strong arc in, especially where you landed, like this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and the idea of hosting a podcast is like, I didn't know this was a thing. This sounds great. I certainly um, knew podcasts were a thing. It's like, great. Now you're a guy with another guy with a podcast. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I get to talk about work and it's really cool. But it, but it's super niche too. So we'll get into that. But what I want you to do is um, speculate a little bit and or correct me where I'm wrong. I feel like what you shared there at the end, like you'd been in the industry and grown your career in it, seen it from a variety of positions from front lines up to, you know, leading, managing, um, building from scratch, et cetera. What do you think it was about um, your personality or your background that allowed the CEO at the end of the contract to say, this dude is going to run the conversation in this industry on behalf of our company and our brand. Oh, a hundred percent. Because we were at an event together. The first time that I ever met Thomas Crowland, our CEO, it was a, it was a, a creative operations industry event uh, here in Los Angeles. And I just couldn't shut up. I was just, it was my first time. It was, it was my first time even attending an industry event. And I had been asked to speak 
um, and and be well, to, asking to speak is maybe overstating it a little bit. I was participating in two panels. It still counts, but you know, it's a it's slightly different. It's more conversational. You got a microphone in a room. You got a microphone in a room. You're up on a stage, sweating in the you know <laughs> the ballroom of the Garland Hotel. But but 100, percent it was that I was just elated that I was in a room full of my peers and we were talking about our problems because the creative, you know, it's the the industry conference is a common thing. Every industry has one. The creative production and creative operations industry is still pretty immature and thinks that it has a lot of secrets to protect. And the truth is it doesn't have a lot of secrets to protect. There aren't really any secrets, actually. The technology, the tools, everything we use to do this job are all bought from the same vendors. They're all the same things. The processes look different. But the truth is what differentiates an e-commerce studio or any creative team at any organization is having a team that is excellent to work with and having great ideas because every tool is exactly the same or it's an, or, or, or it is a competitor of something and they do the same thing. Was that message? Cause I, just the way you expressed it now, I'm sure you've expressed it in other rooms, if not in that, in that ballroom at the Garland hotel. Um, did that seem like heresy in, does that seem like heresy in some rooms that you're in? It still does today, but the but like it's it's rapidly changing because what we're seeing more and more and and COVID definitely disrupted this because I don't think in 2019 that wasn't the first creative operations event, but it was pretty early on. I my guess would be that they were only doing them for a few years. I don't know, Ethan. Did you ever attend any events put on by IEN, the Information Exchange Network? No. Or hear of that? Yeah. So that was the company that did it that did this event and they had all, I mean, they, they were an event company similar to like Henry Stewart. They were doing events for all different kinds of things, but uh, you know, they're still to this day. I, I was at the Henry Stewart creative operations event just earlier this week down here in Los Angeles. And there still are people from companies. And it's like, you, you get to know who shows up at these things and you start to get to know who the new people are. And so when somebody from Lululemon shows up and Lululemon doesn't usually show up at these events, and then you talk to them and it's like, this is amazing. I'm I'm getting so many good ideas, so much good information. There still is this heavy sense of catharsis when people see this. And I think it, as they get bigger and as they grow, the holdouts who are unwilling to share best practices and ideas are starting to kind of look like curmudgeons in the industry a little bit, to be honest with you. And that's like, that's how I know that we're maturing. And that's how I know we're reaching maturity. The way that I put it is that the creative operations, creative production industry is somewhere between adolescence and adulthood. I don't know exactly where. But we're like, we're still fighting it just a little bit, but we're also kind of falling in line and understanding like, this is how it's going to go and we can embrace it and we can get a lot of value out of it. Love it. Talk to me about that initial conversation where you are being brought on as chief evangelist. A, what was your initial reaction to the title? Uh, and B, what was the original vision for the role? How well developed was it? And what has it become since then? I know that's multiple questions layered, but kind yeah. of draw that arc out. like. Um, what was your gut reaction just for fun, uh, to, to the title? And then, you know, what, what did you and the company think it was going to look like and where, how is that, uh, different and, or the same today? Yeah, I was a little bit unique in that I was hired in the sort of era of creative force that we call the write your own job description era. And there's a couple of kind of things here, and I'm definitely peeling back the curtain a little bit. And hopefully, hopefully Thomas doesn't get mad at me for saying it this way, but I don't, I don't think he will. I think it's the truth. He, he, you know, I'll, I will start here. When I first heard the title, it was a healthy, healthy dose, a dowsing, if you will, 
of imposter syndrome, just a wave of it. Because the only other chief evangelist that I knew was Guy Kawasaki. And I am not Guy Kawasaki. I am very, very, very far from Guy. I might have given Guy Kawasaki a hot dog when I worked the concession stand or something. That's the relationship between us, right? And so, you know, but but Thomas, you know, I think he saw the value in having a role like that that could be really flexible. And there's a part of it, I think, too, that like Creative Force is a very innovative tech company. And this is a role that very innovative tech companies usually have. Uh, and so I did, I wrote a lot of my own job description the, the podcast was absolutely a mandate and I knew that that was going to be a big part of it. And in the early days of creative force, when we were a small team for, um, a little bit of context, creative force was spun out of another company that Thomas was also a co-founder of. And they, he ended up the, that, that company had a different leadership structure and they ended up Thomas and his co-founder Tice Rasmussen bought creative force out and it became its own entity. Uh, and so we had a, a, a pretty significant development staff in Vietnam. I think at the time that I came on, it was like maybe 30 developers, but the core team outside of development, basically everybody who was covering customer success, customer support, marketing operations, um, product management, and all of that stuff was 12 of us. Uh, today, including our, our much bigger development staff, I think we're, we're well over 100 at this point. Uh, and that's over the last year, about a year of growth. So it's been quite a bit of growth. And early on, what that meant was that roles, the like lines were very blurred. Many people in those early days, like I said, had kind of written their own job description. Uh, and the only real mandate was the podcast. So the things that started off that were really important was the podcast. But then also like I was... I saw a big part of my role in supporting sort of our sales and engineering teams. And by, by engineering teams, what I mean is the people who were working with potential customers to figure out how to adapt our software for their workflows. So at, in the early days, I was really leveraging a lot of my knowledge from how studios worked and what some of the best practices were. And then also my knowledge of the platform to help support the sales team and the sales engineers team who are making some of these decisions. And then we were all doing customer support. And I, I actually enjoyed that a lot. It's, truth be told, I did. there's moments that I didn't enjoy doing customer support. Our customers are all great and our support interactions are all great all, all the time. For me, it was more just about that going, you know, one of my favorite books is the book Scrum. And one of the things about Scrum is a whole chapter on waste. And one of the things about waste is unexpected work and the things that, and that's basically what customer support stuff represents, right? I'm working on something else and then boom, somebody needs something. And that was, that was why that's where the love hate relationship comes from. But I do advocate for people. If you care at all about the company you work for and you have an opportunity to do any level of customer support, I think you absolutely should. Because what it gave me the opportunity to do is talk directly to our customers about the problems they're having with our software. And we're a company that like our software can't work if our customers aren't invested in using it and helping us make it the tool that works the best possible way for them. So that was like in the beginning. It has since then, of course, shifted as the team has grown. I've been a little bit removed from customer success. I've been a little bit removed from some of the more even day-to-day -day operations of the company. And I spend quite a bit more of my time externally facing attending industry events we get invited to sponsor events a lot and that usually comes with a speaking slot um i don't this podcast i doubt is going up in the next few days but i'll be in san francisco next week speaking for the binder on brand event up there and uh you know that's that's like that's maybe the fifth thing i've done this year uh, but then, you know, being being active a lot on linkedin a huge chunk of our audience is on linkedin 
Um, and then, you know, helping develop sort of the, the podcast. Com- it, it's when you have a podcast like ours, there really is two parts of it. There's the podcast that we have to produce, the episode, episodes that we have to get out there. But there's also this other asset that exists, and that's our listening base. We do not have a lot of listeners, but they are very passionate. Uh, and an interesting thing about podcasting, and I think, you know, I, I suspect, Ethan, that you'll back me up on this. Um, podcast listeners are kind of funny. They don't really want to engage with you, even if you come in your episode and ask them specifically, rate us, review us, send me an email, comment on our posts, please tell me you exist. But when you see them in person, uh, when you when you go to like when I go to these industry events, many of my listeners are at these industry events and they're they're obviously passionate. They're obviously engaged. They're reminding me of things that I said 50 episodes ago. And I have now podcast brain where I don't remember the thing that I said in the podcast that I recorded yesterday. So um, it's, you know, I'm digressing very, very hard here. I apologize, Ethan. But the really my role has become much more outward facing because we're trying to build. We're trying to build this community, which I think is distinct from the industry, but it also is trying to elevate the industry to a position where it can be marketed to for our tool. And so that's a big part of it is like developing this community, sharing best practices, getting everybody kind of aligned. And now we have a group of people who maybe are are ready to be marketed to for some of these more advanced tools that are coming to support their industry. But because they're so new, there's, I won't say skepticism, but there's just hesitancy. There's not understanding what it is. And I see that as a huge part of my mission is just being out there, connecting people to help each other get us all in the level playing field and then have, you know, build this, build this audience of people who are like now ready to be, you know, sold to. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect, Engage, Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelists, let's get back to it. Yeah, so good. Okay, so I love the lines that you drew relative to sales, relative to customer success. Absolutely agree with the idea of support and direct customer communication. I also love that you started by doing product videos. Quick quick question. How familiar were you with the Creative Force platform uh, when you started doing those initial videos? Was that your first kind of dive in or were you already generally familiar with it? Really great. That's a great question, Ethan. And I have to remind myself of this all the time. Um, When I was at the commercial studio just before COVID, and I went to that first industry event when I met our CEO, Thomas, um, I went to that event both because I was invited to participate in the panel, but also because the part of the reason that the, the studio had hired me was because they had um, signed a big client. It was a big jewelry brand and they were shooting all of the e-com product photos. This studio was actually owned by a very uh, well-known and very accomplished advertising photographer and he didn't know a lot about e-com production and how to like build an e-com studio. It's an entirely different animal. And so that's why they hired me. And it was basically to kind of like manage this one customer's 
need, it was enough to justify hiring me to build a process around servicing that customer. But then the idea was that we would be able to plug in a lot of customers into that. We needed software to back this up. We knew that we needed software because up to this point, um, and and I think, you know, listeners of this podcast, I, I think probably will understand there's a lot of other industries that are like this. You know, I think there's probably plenty of salespeople out there who remember the days before CRMs existed. Like, like how did you manage sales before HubSpot was a thing? It was a lot of spreadsheets. It was a lot of disparate tools. That's exactly what studios were using. Spreadsheets, trying to use FileMaker for things it wasn't supposed to be used for, all that stuff. There was no one thing. And so the reason that those those that hodgepodge of band-aids would work at a scaled up studio is because you had enough people. You had enough people to actually manage all of these tools and administer the ones that need to be administered. I was the studio where it was me and I didn't have the bandwidth to do all of that. So we needed a tool and we had been reached out to by Creative Force and we had re been reached out to by this company, uh, one of our competitors called ShotFlow. And these were really the only two competitors. There's a few more competitors at the time now, but these were the only two people who were professing to make e-commerce photography production management software. So I went to that event ready to evaluate these tool to, two tools, ready to evaluate these two tools. I was already leaning towards Creative Force because the UI was amazing. It's no surprise that it's amazing because one of the co-founders of Creative Force is Tice Rasmussen. He's a Danish guy. And, and, and I mean like true uh, tradition of Danish designers, except for UI and websites. It's not furniture, it's UI and websites. I mean, it, like creatives are very, very sensitive to UI. And uh, ShotFlow at the time resembled like, you know, like something, and I don't mean this in a denigrating way, but it it, it really resembled something more along the lines of like a uh, like an accounting software or something. It was pretty Austere business. Austere in design yeah. by engineers. Yeah, I think that I think that's a great way of putting it. And so I was leaning that way already. The price point was a little bit better, but at the time it was very early for their product. So this is a long way around of saying that uh, I we ended up deciding that we wanted to try to implement Creative Force and we actually failed in that. We were not able to implement Creative Force in our studio. It was a variety of reasons and I'm I'm partially to blame for some of it. Um, but we just couldn't make it work. And we ended up having to continue on with like what we knew. It's it, This is the this is the sort of catch 22 of this phase of the studio is the studios have some form of a process that works. It sucks and it uses all these band-aids that nobody likes, but they know that it works. And then trying to implement a new system. And if it doesn't work the way that you expect it to, it's like, well, now we just have to go back to the thing that we know does work because we still have to be working. We got to be producing these images. So it's a very difficult thing to implement something like this. Uh, when I started making these feature videos, though, it was an entirely different product. We were like a year and a half removed and they do creative, not we, they do, we do creative force does sprint releases every two weeks. And usually about every quarter, we have a pretty significant sprint release that that can change some dramatic things about the way that the software works or add features that are pretty big and change the way that our customers want to use the software. So I really didn't know anything about where creative force was when I started making feature videos, they gave me an account. I got in there and I started using the account for the couple of customers that I had that I was shooting product for. And in general, just going in there and I got a brief crash course from the team there. I didn't get like onboarded or anything like that because I didn't have a, I didn't have a process to build into it, but it really was like a big part of it was me saying they want me to do a video about metadata. I got to learn all the ways that metadata is implemented in the system. And so I would build myself a production process. I'd run images through the system. I, I have a fully equipped home studio, which you can see in the video feed, Ethan, behind me. Like I've got 
cameras, sets, lights. Like I, I have a fully equipped production studio. So I would build myself a workflow, test it out, make sure it functioned the way that I wanted to. And then I'd run my script by the guys at Creative Force and make sure that I wasn't way off base on stuff. And so it really was like, I, I, in the this is not true anymore. I want to be very clear about that. We have tons of talented people. But the result of that is that like three months into being chief evangelist of Creative Force, I was probably one of the top two or three people at Creative Force who knew the platform absolutely inside and out. Yeah, I so good. So much good detail. And then this like dovetails into so many of the other stories that I've heard about depth of familiarity. And I'll just even share a little bit of my own there. You know, when I joined BombBomb, we had very few customers and very little revenue. And it, the initial iteration of it was essentially an email marketing platform, but designed completely around video. So it was essentially a constant contact or a MailChimp with video. So I did probably the first two or three years of marketing out of an admin tool that we were building for ourselves to keep right. track of customers and stuff. And uh, and then I was using you know the platform for forms, for emails, for landing pages, all kinds of stuff. So I was up to a point, the most prolific user of the software. I knew it inside now. And of course that changed over time, but I don't want anyone to miss this idea of intimacy with the product, specifically through the lens of intimacy with the customer's problems and opportunities. This idea that you had to figure out what are the best use cases and mimic right. them and see if it held up and all that. Super powerful. But the other thing that I kind of um, took us away from that is critical, one of the most important fundamental ideas you shared is preparing an immature market to be sold to. And it's not yeah. the sold to part that matters. It's this market doesn't, what I'm hearing in that statement or that observation, and of course I summarized it a little bit, but it's, there's no clear point of view. It's not exactly clear where we're going. It's not exactly clear what the next best practices are going to be. We're not sure how to be thinking about it. We're not sure how long these band-aids are going to hold. Like, and so this, there's this whole thing of like, what is normal today is not sufficient. It's not acceptable. It's holding you back in a variety of different ways. There's a better future. Let's right. talk about that. Like that is the, so, yeah. so, so give that back to me. Do, did I characterize approximately how you see this kind of still relatively immature, awkward teenage stage industry and the role of evangelism in it? Yeah, you absolutely got it right, Ethan. And I think there's a couple of forces at play that I think are kind of interesting. For one thing, you know, I'm, I, I feel like I could see it when you, when you said it back to me initially, and I, I feel the same way. I hate saying preparing this group of people to be sold to, because I think that evokes a lot of things that are unpleasant in the sort of like sales process a little bit. And it's not exactly that, but the truth is that like, I've, I've, I, I do go out on um, in-person demos with some of our customers. I love spending time in a photo studio and I miss it all the time. It's like a missing part of my personality at this point. Uh, and so when I do get an opportunity to go, though, it's really obvious that the people that are in the room aren't sure how to evaluate us as a solution and really kind of figure out the cost benefit analysis. I guess the better way of putting it is tr trying to develop this group of people to be prepared to buy something um, instead of saying being sold to. But there's a couple of forces at play here that factor into this. The first one is historically, e-commerce creative production has been viewed as basically a cost center for every business. And the, the history here, I'll give you the really abridged one. 
the modern day e-commerce photo studio was really born out of the 2008 recession. And there's a couple of things. One thing is the recession itself, but there's a couple of uh, a confluence of other events that are around the same time. 2008, the recession happened. Tons of companies who were not interested in embracing e-com realized that they needed to diversify in some way because there were some segments of e-com that weren't hit as hard as brick and mortar stores were. Uh, and so there was that part of it. It sort of, I mean, I think it would have gotten there anyway, similar to what we saw with e-com during COVID. We would have gotten there, but it accelerated it. But the other thing is there was all these flash sale sites that popped up. And this was a little bit in response to the recession. What, you know, and for your audience, might remember like Hotlook.com, MyHabit.com, all these sites that had deeply discounted, usually fashion products, but it could be a lot of different things. But the thing that was unique about them is they were digital first. These were not usually legacy companies or brick and mortar companies that were adapting into this. They were digital first. And they had sales that had to go on every day. And those sales needed images to support that product. It was the only way to sell it. And so they were building studios that they had constant flow of product day in, day out. It never stopped. Product would come in. It needed to be shot. It needed to be get go through its entire process and then get into the asset management tool and then get onto the web. So along with that was like, uh, I call them e-commerce aggregate companies that were going around and buying successful Amazon third-party sellers and then kind of conglomerating them into something. They were opening studios. And then a lot of the legacy companies like Gap Brands were like, you know, they already had studios, but they were like, we can consolidate our studios and build an e-com studio machine. And that's kind of how all of this stuff sort of happened. So the industry that we're in is is literally young. It literally was born out of that, right? 2008 era kind of gaining speed around 2015 Amazon I think peaked in this regard Amazon was building studios that appeared so futuristic it was like mind-blowing building automated imaging devices uh complex workflows and the thing that was really mind-blowing was like how much money they were investing in this process because a big metric in these studios is what does it cost to produce one image and I remember being like looking at an Amazon studio with like 200 people and I'm like why what we, this has got to be like 300 400 500 per image that it costs it turns out, no, they figured out that if we chop it up and put people in the right roles and let them focus on the thing they're good at, we do it fast enough that it, that, you know, it evens out our costs stay relevant. So because of all of that, the other thing you have to understand is that the workforce is just barely getting into something that resembles maturity. We just now have pro professionals that come from the e-commerce studio that have 10 years of experience, but they probably only have five, you know, five or six years of experience as a photographer, as a stylist, as a samples administrator, and if only a few years of experience in like a leadership position, and maybe only one year of experience procuring tools for their own studios. So the, the you know, we're just barely getting to the point where the workflow, or the, literally the workforce that powers these studios, not just the industry, is mature. And in some cases, I've been in studios given demos where the studio manager only has ever worked at that studio and has been pretty insulated from, you know, other studios, best practices. And while I was just actually having a really interesting conversation about this right before we hopped on to record this, Ethan, I was reflecting on retention has always been an issue in creative roles. It always kind of feels like the average thing is like 18 months to two years, and then you rotate around companies. And I was thinking about the impact that that had on the spread of best practices and the sort of homogenization of the industry itself. Because as people were working for Amazon for two years and going to work for Nordstrom for two years and going to work for Farfetch for two years, 
a really interesting anecdote in our in our industry actually is Amazon pretty much had the Midwest on lock when it came to studio jobs. If you wanted to be a commercial photographer, Amazon was basically the only scaled up studio that you could get a job in. And then Rue Guilt Group moved to Kentucky and opened a studio. And there was a mass exodus from Amazon to people to that studio. Now they had an option, right? And that, and you can see that you can sort of trace if you like, you know, maybe being a chief evangelist a little bit is like an archaeologist for your industry in some ways, because you can see, you start to see traces of best practices from these places, but you still have these studios that grew up in isolation. The studio manager who's worked for 10 years in that studio and is actually totally unaware of some of the ways that other studios are working and some of the, the things that they've solved for. And so, yeah, evangelism in some ways it becomes about reaching out to those people and saying like, you know, one of the things that we do that I really love doing is like, is when we sponsor one of these industry events and conferences, part of that package is usually some passes. And I try to think like, who can I get to come to this conference, give them a pass to this conference that has never been to it, that I think would benefit from it. Because it really is teasing all those people out from where they are. And like, you know, continue continuing to kind of homogenize this industry in a way that you know, I don't want everybody to look the same, but the studios all already do the same thing. It's just that they don't realize they're all doing the same thing, that they have the same problems that every other studio has, uh, and they can fix some of those things and still continue to sort of retain their individual identity, but actually build something that resembles a best practice and alleviates some of the problems that they have. Yeah, I love that you wound up uh, with giving the passes away because as you were describing this person, I was like, dude needs to get to the Garland Hotel. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah it turns exactly out that's right. what you're facilitating. Yeah. It's it's so good. I, you know, you said archaeologist. I think definitely uh I was thinking historian as you were going through that. Like I was yeah. just uh, historian's a much better word. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, no. I mean when both and I mean there are cultural artifacts and other things and other symbols, and like it it is it could be as nuanced as that. I mean, you are um discovering the hows and whys and putting it in context. I, so I, I really love that point too, because it's one that hasn't come up. I think this is going to be something like episode 10 or 11. Um, that hasn't come up yet. It hasn't come up in any of my unrecorded conversations around it either. This ability to, because you told it in a very concise and compelling manner. I'm like, I've I don't been, know to be industry. fair, I've been working on it. <laughs> this is, I, 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 it was maybe four nights ago. I stayed up till 2 AM typing this out because I just had a sudden realization of some of the forces that were at play, but I appreciate that feedback a lot. Yeah, well, but, but so here's the thing. So that is going to work into a presentation. It's going to work into another conversation. It's going to work into a Q and a session where the panel wasn't about that, but someone unlocks this scenario and you're able to just drop that. And so I just don't want people to miss the idea that the evangelist can certainly play a really important role of telling the story mm. uh, in an arc with context, with dates and times and locations and trends and shifts and, uh, you know, uh, kind of watershed moments. You know, I just, you know, the way that you teed it up on um, the recession and what that meant, even the way that you teed up what happened to studios with regard to COVID. And so that context a, I think it helps with younger people coming in. Um, B, I think, especially for anyone that's been off in their own little space for too long, they're missing that context altogether. And so from a functional standpoint, I would, I'm sure I'm about to give this back to you. And I'm sure you'll agree that it is helpful to you that they've probably offered some of those details in select moments. You just hadn't put it all together into one. Um the yeah. way that you did here. And you may not use it that way, but that is very useful context for you personally to have clarity on 
for internal and external communication going forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ethan, because like like I said, what I what I what I interjected there a minute ago, it 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 was it was a realization that all of the dots were there that I hadn't connected yet. And, uh, you know, like, and that's why it felt like so easy to just like, you know, I kind of like I had, I was laying in bed and I wasn't sleeping great anyway. And then I was just like, I got to get this out. And by, that's another thing, you know, I think the two, two other things I think for the chief evangelist that I think become really important. One is like, have a notebook and a pencil or a pen everywhere. Like I carry, and this is actually something I did way before I was a chief evangelist is just like, you can't trust yourself to remember these thoughts and ideas never come to you fully formed. And so you need to be able to jot these things down. You need to have, you need to get them out somehow. I have multiple ways. My favorite way to do it is with a regular old pencil and a notebook, but I still keep a running document on my phone. That's just like, I have, you know, I use the shortcuts app on my iPhone to open up a Google doc. That's just a list of bullet pointed things that I know need to go somewhere, but I don't know where they go yet. So that's a kind of a big thing is like note taking and getting thoughts out of your brain because the, those, those ideas never come to you fully formed. And I had not put together, I mean, specifically about that thing that I just shared, I had not, I knew the recession was a huge element of that, but I had never really, I don't know what triggered that consideration about how the flash sale sites actually played into that. But something got me thinking about like, at what point, like, why did these companies realize they needed to have their own studios? Because historically a company would contract with an agency that has their own studio. And that seems to be the most economical way of doing it. One studio, one group of creatives who are producing creative for a lot of different companies because those companies don't have a constant need. And then something just clicked and there it was. The other thing I was going to mention besides note-taking though that I realized is that like, I'm somebody that people have told me throughout my life that I was good at telling a story. And I knew instinctually when I had a good story to tell but like everything, I'm learning that it's a skill that I still have. Like just because somebody told me once that I have a natural talent at it doesn't mean that I'm always good at it. And it certainly doesn't mean that I couldn't get a hell of a lot better at it. And so basically the entire time that I've been in this role, I have read, I don't know how many books on storytelling for both business, personal, how to craft stories. A big one for me is how to unlock memories. My memory is really not great, but like I've read a lot of books about how to sort of like just think about situations and try to lock in on emotions and realizing that you can sort of kind of like be an archaeologist in your own brain a little bit and start to like pull out some of these memories. It also really helps that we've had iPhones backing up images to the cloud for like the last, I don't know, 12 to 10 years or something. So I can go back through and I can look at pictures that I took from the studio in 2013 and it can remind me like, oh yeah, we used to do it that way. And that was insane. But storytelling really, it's a it's an extraordinarily powerful tool that I don't, I absolutely do not think it should be only used by the chief evangelist or the people in your organization who are standing up in front of people and sharing information. Uh, but I do think if you are in a role like that, like a chief evangelist, it's absolutely critical and you should take the time, whether it's classes or books or an, even a one-on-one -on -one coach to learn how to craft and tell a compelling story. And do it concisely, as you can tell from this podcast. I'm chatty, and that helps, but it sometimes gets me into trouble. Love it. Um, love both of those recommendations. I'll add one and then give you a quick question. Uh, the one that I would add is, you know, I, like you, when I get excited about something, I'll read a lot, I'll listen to a lot of podcasts about it, and really just kind of immerse myself in it. 
so I can get clear on what was my motivation here and, and what are, you know, give me a few takeaways that I can start focusing on so I can evaluate myself and my work or, you know, whatever relative to this thing I want to be better at. Uh, the one thing that I've definitely been intentional about including in the mix is not reading and not listening and walking. Um, mm. So, so you definitely need to consume but if you don't create the space for your mind to digest all of this input, it's just like overfeeding your body, yeah. right? It's just this indigestion. It's uncomfortable I'm, and all that. So the space to let the ideas do whatever they're going to do. And then also for like this six, and this is why I love your note-taking um, suggestion, this idea of this, this thing that occurred to you three, four, five, six months ago that never found a purpose, somehow just by it being on the list and you seeing it from time and again, will immediately intersect with something. I find that that's a great source of creativity for me is, yeah. is uh, two, two seemingly disparate ideas that never connected before in my own mind coming together in a unique way. And it does require input, but it also requires space for processing. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually glad you said the thing about walking uh, because, and I, and I will, I'll, I'll say it. I, I used to say the thing of like any time that you can be away from some, um, external stimulus like a book or a phone or something like that but i but you know I, i'm i'm a big cyclist i do a lot of bike riding but i also just there's something honestly there's just something magical about walking because i don't even think the same way when i bike as i do when i'm just strolling but one of my most uh one of my most proud pieces of written content that i've ever made for creative force er, er, early on was the result of me walking around and thinking about something and realizing that I needed to take a voice memo. And I did this like stream of consciousness, walk and talk. And what I was doing is I was trying to make the case to convince, like I wanted to write a piece that, that made the case that a studio should consider hiring a person whose dedicated job is the training manager. It's not really a role that exists in very many studios. There might be a, like a couple out there, but otherwise it doesn't exist. And you're talking about an environment that uses so many different tools and technology with so many specialized roles that it makes perfect sense to me that this exists. But I was trying to like figure out how I can make this case. And so I walk, I start the voice memo, I talk for about 30 minutes. And I had like three epiphanies that were just mind blowing just by, and, and again, I'm not worried about the quality of this voice memo at all. I'm saying everything out loud. And this is a little bit individual to me. Uh, one of the things that I need is I often need a sounding board to work through problems. I'm not a person who internalizes a lot of them. The thoughts start up there. And when I know I'm on to something is when I share it with somebody and then I get that feedback that I get and we kind of talk through it together. So in this case, I had this like 30 minute long stream of consciousness thing. And then I worked with a copywriter who helped me kind of like organize the ideas a little bit. We figured out where we needed to research. And we wrote this 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 article for the Creative Force blog that like I don't think it moved the needle at all in <laughs> the industry. I think it might have been too early for it, but uh, I'm incredibly proud of it because it was like it, it was the process felt so good, and I thought we made a really compelling, clear cut case. And all I did was walk around the neighborhood like a crazy person talking into my AirPods. Love it. The day will come for that piece if it hasn't already. Yeah, it still exists, right? It doesn't go away just because, you know, we 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 tend to think of like, especially me, like a like the, the Instagram style of content where it lives and dies and it's very brief. But, you know, we get evergreen stuff on the B2B side of things. Yeah, totally. Man, this has been so fun. I haven't even asked you um, to, I got, I've got a number of questions that I would like to, but I think for the sake of time, we'll maybe save them for a follow-up conversation, sure. but it's, you know, how do you split your time across those different channels you're talking about? That was the first time you talked about writing. 
curious, like, well, I guess give me a quick one on that. How would like, is writing 5% of your time, 10% of your time? The the writing kind of went 30%. by the wayside. It's been, yeah. it's been, it's, I would say it's five or less now. Um, And then the writing really ends up manifesting itself in working on other pieces of content. And then we, we like, we modify it to be used on the blog, but there is a part of me that has for a while now wanted to go back to like writing a, like writing some pieces that were intended to live natively on the blog, as opposed to you know, adapting a podcast episode, adapting a feature video, or a lot of times what ends up happening is like taking a talk that we work on for a presentation and then turning that into an article. Uh, but there is still, I think there's still a lot of value in, and I, I get a lot, personally a lot of enjoyment out of writing stuff like that. So it's, it's too low now, but I'd like to make it more. Love it. Uh, fun question for you. Uh, as we wind down, what is something that you find yourself evangelizing, or perhaps have even been accused of evangelizing in your personal life? product love, idea service something else i love this question so much and part of it is because i have accused friends of mine of being a secret evangelist for something like costco because i'm like man why are you telling me every single week something at costco that you think i need to immediately buy are they paying you for this uh but you know my answer coming into this um as of yesterday was going to be different but i had an experience last night that i was like this has got to be the thing and for me it's e-bikes uh, I mentioned that I'm a big cyclist and I think e-bikes represent a seismic shift in the way that we think, not just about recreation with bicycles, but I truly think about transit as well. Um, we're going to be in some trouble. We already are in quite a bit of trouble climate wise. And I think we need more people to be using other modes of transportation besides the personal automobile and the e-bike, you know, I've seen so many of them out on the trails that I ride when I ride for recreation uh, people who normally wouldn't be able to ride a bike who can because they get increased range. But here's the thing. Here's the specific thing that led me to evangelize for this today on this show in particular. I guess I spoiled it for your audience that you asked. You told me you'd asked this in advance. I apologize, Ethan. No, it's fine. It's, I'm going to ask it to everybody. And so anyone that listens to like three episodes yeah. will be like, oh, that's what happens now. Right. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, I, a while ago, since I work from home, uh, I realized that the car, my personal car was, was representing more of a liability than anything else. It was parked on the street. I live in a neighborhood where we've had a problem with catalytic converter theft. Uh, I have an older car. So if my catalytic converter got stolen, it would pretty much be the end of that car for me. So I figured I should just sell it and get the $3,000 then, you know, wait until they steal the catalytic converter and then have to pay $3,000 to get it fixed. So I sold it and I used that money to buy, I already had one e-bike, an e-cargo bike, and I used it to buy another more traditional e-bike just for going to various meetings. We didn't even touch on this, but in another role, I'm Parks and Recreation Commissioner for the city that I live in. So I'd have to go downtown to some meetings and things like that. I don't have a huge need for a personal car though. But my wife and I, uh, we managed to get a babysitter for our four kids last night. And for the first time in a very long time, we had a little bit of a date night and I decided we were going to do a bike date. So I got the e-bike out. We got dressed up. I got the cargo bike out and my wife sat in the back. She's a very comfortable bench seat in the back of this cargo bike. And I rode us downtown. We rode right up to the front door of the restaurant that we were eating at, parked and locked the bike, went in and ate, walked around downtown, had coffee, had some drinks, biked around just to see the entertainment district. And I got to tell you, I've been married for 15 years. My wife and I have been together for about 20 years and I have not felt uh, like I felt last night in probably 18 years. It was like we were kids again. It was so fun. It was so interesting uh, that we parlayed that today into biking our kids to the local pumpkin patch so they could do their, and just like 
e-bikes are the thing. It's so much fun. It changes your relationship for even running local errands. If you live a mile, two miles from your nearest grocery store, biking to your grocery store instead of driving changes your entire perspective on your community. Uh, I'm, I, I can't, I can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of riding my bike. And I think that everybody should have an e-bike. Man. Okay. Well done. First of all, yes, you definitely evangelize that. Well, and frankly, I think the e-bike thing really does need as, as an observer, um, of that rather than a practitioner or a participant, um, it definitely needs evangelism. Right. And you kind of drew, drew that bridge a little bit between is it transportation? Is it recreation? Is a little bit of both? Like, who is this for? Um, and you did a really nice job of that. I think the, yeah. the industry up, needs a lot more of it. <laughs> Hit me up, REI, if you need me to do some work. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think so too. And I think, you know, I've become, for lack of a better term, radicalized in some ways. I know all of the safest and most dangerous bike paths in my city as a result. And I think it, I think it will start to breed some civic engagement, which is something else that we need as well. 100%. And the, the thing that I love about that, and just you, you triggered it for me too in your first pass on it about, you know, seeing things differently and you just kind of restated in a different way there is I've often thought about the different, uh, my own relationship with different streets and different neighborhoods when I walk mm. versus when I run versus mm. when I ride my bike versus when I'm wrapped in my little hybrid car. <laughs> yeah. Your and, person, and they're all personal different climate cold different living room. Speeds. What's that? <laughs> your personal climate cold living room that you drive through the city. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's, it's like this, um, just the difference in your relationship to the space, as well as the speed of passing by, your ability mm. to interact with different things around you. Um, I think the mix is good, but I definitely like this bias toward uh, the e-bike for a lot of jobs that we're currently performing with car. Anyway, totally yeah. separate topic. That was great. Yeah. Well done. You obviously are an evangelist for it. And REI do hit him up. Uh, <laughs> he could also take the pictures. Um, Daniel Jester, you're awesome. I super enjoyed this. I look forward to more conversations as we continue on. Um, in our roles and in our careers and in our lives. And for folks that want to catch up with you and connect, where would you point them? Yeah, my, you know, I live a lot of my professional life on LinkedIn and I'm pretty easy to find Daniel T. Jester. Uh, my profile picture is me with a beard, which has gotten pretty distinctive in my sort of circles. Uh, and then I also am on Instagram. I have an Instagram for sort of my photography. But one of the things, again, about my my industry maturing, I have a love-hate relationship with Instagram. But I've noticed that my peers are starting to talk more about work on Instagram than they used to. So I'm trying to reinvigorate that as well. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Daniel T. Jester, at Daniel T. Jester on Instagram. Uh, yeah, and that's it. I just want to say, Ethan, while I have the opportunity to, uh, you have made a material difference in the way that I feel and think about my role. And I really appreciate that you were receptive when I reached out to you. I really appreciate you inviting me on this podcast. Uh, and I think the work that you're doing is really interesting and helpful. And it just has really meant a lot to me that that you you put those resources out there when nobody else was talking about it. And that's what you're doing now in your own space. First, thank you so much for the kind words. Really appreciate it. Folks can hit me up too. It's Ethan Butte, B-E-U-T-E on LinkedIn. Um, we are just getting started with this. Like the way you described e-com production and kind of where you are a decade later, this thing it was your outreach and that of a handful of other people. I felt like it was accelerating and I obviously care about this whole idea of evangelism in general. I'm not married to the chief evangelist role or the evangelist title of any kind. It's right. just the nature of the work touches and intersects with and supports and advances 
all of the other functions, like it has a place and we just need to have this conversation ongoing. So I guess I'm evangelizing evangelism and I appreciate you participating in it. And again, lots more to come uh, between you and me and between us and all the other folks that want to have this conversation. Absolutely, Ethan. Thanks again. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.